Welcome to Activate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey, everyone. You are tuned in to another episode of the Activate podcast. I'm Tommy from Remerge. Today's guest, like always, is someone who we're absolutely thrilled to chat with someone with a lot of experience, who is an absolute expert, and should be able to really share some cool insights given some of the businesses he's worked on in the past, as well as some of the projects he's working on today. In any case, today's guest is Antoine Lamy, who is the co-founder of a company called Rave. Antoine, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Very good. Thank you, Tommy. Hello, everyone. And yeah, thanks for inviting me. Antoine, as we can probably hear from your accent, you are French, I believe, and you are currently based in France, correct? I'm based in France. Yeah, I'm in Paris. Nice. And how long have you been there? It's been now like two weeks. I recently moved, yeah, in the middle of everything, but I I recently moved from Amsterdam. Nice. Well, congrats. And are you originally from France or the Paris area? Originally from France, yeah. I've spoken with guests who are French before. I don't think, and this is something that's become more and more fascinating to me. I don't think I've gotten a good sense of what the tech culture is like in France, however, though, with any of the people I've spoken to. Could you speak a little bit too? Is there a pretty strong marketing or digital or mobile marketing community in France to speak of? Yeah, I think so. There is, especially in marketing, I would say like it's pretty a unique market. I mean, thanks for like because of the language barrier, first of all. So you have to adapt. But I think also on the marketing scene, you saw like in the like rise of the uh, mobile uh, marketing world in the last few years, you saw a lot of agencies and very good agencies like raising and getting more and more clients, international clients. I'm from uh, one of them in France, in Paris, actually. That's where I uh, learned to launch uh, mobile campaigns uh, and make them effective and uh, focus on ROI. The scene, like in, especially in marketing, mobile is pretty, pretty strong. What agency had you worked for? I worked at Addict Mobile. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with them. Could you tell our, what were you doing there? What were some of your experiences? So I was working on, on different clients. So I was an account manager working for BlaBlaCar. So the car sharing uh, app, but also like uh, gaming uh, apps, gaming uh, publishers, uh, news publishers as well. So basically, it was pretty diverse. But the idea was always the same, like trying to find a way to make the campaigns ROI positive. So pretty tough for news app, for sure, <laughs> to, to understand how you get uh, to a ROI positive mode, but easier for apps like Bloodlacker, where you have like uh, bookings and revenues uh, coming. Nice. Yeah, we had Maria Fossarello, I believe was her name, who works at Bloodlacker, was one of our guests on this podcast at one point. So that's really cool that you got to work on that. Yeah, I, worked, I remember her. Uh, we worked together when I was in, uh, in Adipomba. So you worked at an agency in France. As you've said, the agency world is kind of growing and, and emerging in France more and more. But you did not stay at Attic Mobile forever. You're not working there today. Could you tell us where did you go after Attic Mobile and how valuable was that experience of working at an agency for you? After I had the opportunity to move to Amsterdam for Uber. So Uber was setting up their headquarters at the time. It was three years and a half ago. And I was, I think, the fifth or yeah, fifth person joining the performance marketing team for EMEA, for Uber. And I was the first one to focus on uh, mobile uh, advertising through ad networks. So yeah, basically at the time it was uh, still pretty big at Uber. And 
basically, yeah, the agency helped me a lot because I was pretty much doing the same thing for many, many different clients on the agency side. And I think I took all the knowledge and all the expertise to apply and be really specific because I was talking to an agency when I arrived and to account manager. And I was at exactly the same position as they were like one month before agent. So it was pretty easy for me to like understand what they were going through, like their discussion with the different networks because I was doing exactly the same thing a little bit before. Totally makes sense. Now, I know you're not at Uber today, but I do want to say uh, the subject of Uber is super interesting for a wide variety of reasons. But I do want to sit on this experience for a minute with you, if that's cool. And I think a lot of the perception that, that people have, especially if you look back three or four years ago. So I know from my experience, I would see Uber ads almost constantly. I would see a lot of playable ads, actually, I think from someone like Cross Install probably at the time. And yeah, it sounds like that was the case. But the perception I always had was Uber was testing like crazy. Did you have that experience? Were you guys testing networks and networks and networks and more and more? And if so, could you give us a sense for like how many different channels maybe you were managing in a given month at, at Uber? Sure. Um, so basically, we were testing a lot, a lot of different networks. When I arrived, I think for EMES specifically, we were up to 25 different sources, oh so different God. channels. Yeah. Everything was managed through the agency we were working with at the time. But basically, it was a lot. We were always trying to make sure that we were not missing on everything. That was the Uber mentality at the time. It changed like uh, now, but it was the Uber mentality, like not to, to miss on any opportunity that uh, we could have. So yeah, that was one of the main reasons why we had like 25 plus. That's a ton. And from my perspective, again, I don't want to talk about myself, but what's always struck me as interesting with a brand like Uber is Uber almost feels ubiquitous, at least in the US, right? And the experience is certainly, I'm, I'm guessing, different in EMEA, right? Where you were based. So maybe Uber isn't as prevalent in EMEA, right? But a challenge for me that I could see with a brand like this is being able to measure how effective these channels actually are for you versus how much growth would have happened anyways. Essentially, the idea of incrementality. Could you speak to a little bit to whether or not that was something you guys were tracking? And if so, was it successful for you or, or did you find it super difficult to track incrementality? At the time, it was very difficult. But I think it was the like overall in the mobile marketing world, like four years ago, it was still like uh, this mentality where you would go through affiliates, mobile and networks, and you wouldn't care about anything beyond like cost per install. And that was the case at Uber at, at the time. But like we realized because we had people who were like really experts in their field, like in the US, in EMEA, but also in APAC, we pretty much realized at some point that what we were doing was not incremental at all. Well, basically, we were like, we just paused a huge portion one day um, of all our uh, advertising through our networks. And we realized like suddenly that organic uh, was picking up. And then now it happened, like saying it now, it sounds like really easy or why did we do that? But at the time it was... It was something that was pretty common and really massively done for uh, different advertisers. Uber was one of them, one of the major. But yeah, suddenly organic picking up, like the exact same portion of traffic that we were buying through ad networks. So then that's where you start thinking and like diving a lot more into a subject like incrementality. It becomes like key for a company like Uber. I have a bunch of questions around this, actually. So... 
Let's take that example, right? Where you guys are running 25 different networks and maybe DSPs and whatnot, right? Mostly through an agency. And you one day decide to cut a ton of that out and you realize that your organic behavior spikes. How long do you keep those media sources turned off for? And does that organic behavior ever change? So the question I'm wondering is, you've probably gone at this point, I don't know, maybe a year of serving high volumes of ads on tons of different networks to tons of different people. So maybe there's still effect in that that is manifesting as organic traffic. Did you find that the organic behavior went down over time as you guys kept your ads paused or did it stay steady basically in perpetuity? No, so it didn't have an impact on the organic like uh, after a long time, after even a long, like really long period. And at Uber, we had the opportunity, you know, we have like a weekly trends, like a lot of people are where it's now, I think it changed like over the years, but at, when I joined, like a lot of people were installing the app, we had a spike in downloads toward the weekends because people were uh, going out and that's when you want to use a service like Uber. But basically after a week, we were able to realize that, okay, like, you know, the difference between organic and paid were like compensated by the posing all the, the networks. And after that, it never changed. Honestly, the organic like stayed stable and even like continued the growth that we had the, before uh, even the pod of the networks. So after a week, you could realize that. And after, let's say, like a period of two months, you could say that, okay, what we were doing was pretty much uh, non-incremental at least, for sure. I mean, that must have been somewhat shocking to you guys. At the t- Maybe not shocking, but it must have been maybe disappointing. You can tell me, but were there any sources that you had been working with that you were really surprised were not incremental to your growth? Some of them, yes, but only a minority. I was already like, we decided to pause because of, uh, let's say, uh, a common ground across all the marketers at Uber. And, and I would say that it was not a surprise because we were expecting something like this when we paused, actually. But I think like some of the networks, let's say two or three, could at least, yeah, brought some incrementality, more than what I was expected. But honestly, like nothing came up. But I think it's already like something like that was really specific to Uber. You couldn't do the same and apply the same logic to a lot of all the different uh, companies just because Uber at the time and still now, in terms of organic growth, it's like a company with a huge volume of organic growth. So just a tiny, you know, like when you have like the marketing budget that you could have like in a company like Uber, even if you spend like a little bit more than what's necessary, you're already like chunking a a huge part of your organic installs because we were already doing a lot. So after that, the question was really like, okay, what could we do on top of what we're doing? That really like was the main questions that I had for the, my last two years. So the, the next two years after the pause, how can we bring installs on top of the organic that we're already bringing, like through just people talking about us, etc. Yeah. So speak to that. What did like, because the way I'm hearing that, right, is you guys pause basically a lot of the media source, a lot of things that you were responsible and a big team was responsible for managing across the board. You pause it, you realize it's not really impacting the business in a way that merits keeping it on. Where do you put your time and your energy from there? From there, it's insane, but like pretty shocking. Also, like within six months, we moved from a place where we were buying a network traffic through an agency to a programmatic in-house. So that's the also the beauty of a company like Uber. It goes really far into something really bad, but it goes also really 
uh, well into something now like really good and in six months and i think like not a lot of company can can achieve that we moved yeah all our display buying uh in-house through programmatic that we were monitoring on our side so it was like a campaign that uh, i was then uh, at the time uh, so we were working with uh, dsps like uh, mediamat or google db360 and we were like monitoring the campaigns ourselves like the marketing managers. so that's uh, yeah. You guys partnered with self-service DSPs like MediaMath or yeah, I mean you said MediaMath, the Trade Desk, but you probably tested a bunch of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you end up selecting just one self-service DSP and through that DSP were you running campaigns still geared at driving installs? No, we were working with different DSPs just because we had different purposes for each of them. One was like uh, meant for brand campaigns that just uh, picked up also for display for a company like Uber after I joined. And like, yeah, yeah, you had another one for focused on uh, installs and first uh, rides. That was the main uh, event focus. And you guys were still within these, not maybe within them, but alongside using these self-service DSPs, were you guys measuring the incrementality from then on out? Yes, exactly. So then that the question immediately, like uh, in all our discussion with the different partners, so not only the DSPs, but also Facebook, Google, all the meetings, you had a point about incrementality, like all the time discussing about their product roadmap, trying to, it basically like came at a time. So I think Uber was maybe one of the first advertiser to talk about it with like those type of partners, but having also like a common voice of different marketers during the three years, starting to speak a lot more about it with Google and Facebook. And that's why like now Facebook and Google provides this type of like in-house, in-platform product. I think, uh, yeah, like a lot of different partners have now their own. Uh, but yeah, it was like on all meetings, all discussion, they have like you have a one-time uh, discussion about incrementality for sure. Totally makes sense. You mentioned Facebook and Google, channels that are very historically considered kind of what we call walled gardens, right? Or even in some cases, black boxes. How challenging it was it to run an incrementality program on something like a Facebook? Were they super open with kind of their methodology and giving raw data to you guys to analyze? Or did you kind of have to trust them at their word, like we do with a lot of things related to Facebook? You have to trust them. So you have two types of campaigns when you have to measure incrementality. Like the first one is uh, acquisition of new users. So users that you never saw in the past, uh, you don't have any device IDs or identifiers for them. So you have to trust them. You have to talk to them and trust them, trust the reports that they send to you. You also have a solution, which is when you have like remarketing campaigns of, I don't know, like people who installed your app but never took any events. What you can do is you can have like a solution where internally you test the incrementality tool for Facebook, for example, by let's say you have like 100% of your base of install. You divide it into two. And then you take the 50% you have. So you have your control and your treatment. On your treatment of your 50%, you divide it into two again. 25% will be tested with the tool of the Facebook tool, incrementality tool. And you see that you can compare an uplift like this by comparing an uplift that you would get oh. with using Facebook normally. But you can test the uplift model of Facebook by doing that. You have 100 users, right? You put 50 of them into a control group. You put 50 of them into the treatment group. But in the treatment group, you split that again into 25 and 25. And were you saying that through this, you were able to test Facebook's incrementality measurement versus your own internal incrementality measurement within those groups to verify that it's accurate? 
Exactly. You can measure it that way. Yeah, yeah. You need to have like a lot of users because the more you split your audience, uh, the more you need to have users to get like significant results statistically. But it was like something which we tried actually to to say, okay, is this legitimate? Is this like is the uplift? Uh, does the uplift from Facebook work? And it, it does like the number that they are giving us are they the right numbers that you you have at the end? That's awesome. So yeah, it sounds like you guys really spent a ton of time investing incrementality, making that a core focus within all of your marketing practices. You also, on top of that, like you said before, kind of a thread that seems to be woven within all of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is maybe that the team at Uber developed a lack of trust for vendors and maybe even agencies over time because you stopped all your media with them, realized it wasn't incremental, and you brought everything in-house. Is it somewhat reasonable to say that trust faded a little bit with an Uber for outside parties running their marketing? I think you have to, when you're on the advertiser side, unfortunately, with all your partners, I mean, their objectives are based on the growth of their marketing spend that goes through their platform. So unfortunately, like all of them, like the more you spend, it's based on the performance that they brought you back. So you have to be, that's the game, I think, like you have to be careful and, but especially like, I think, especially with agencies, like unfortunately, because that's uh, how they operate and that's how they, they make revenue is like, based on the portion of uh, marketing spend that like they manage. So especially for agencies, like then we, we decided to manage everything in house. That's why also we transitioned like really quickly. But I think that's the case for all marketing partners when you are on the data side and when you're working with different managers, you have to challenge them and they also have to challenge the advertiser. They also have, I think the best partners that we had were challenging us on uh, our measurements, how we were looking at incrementality results. They were providing us like much more insights and what they had, because sometimes we were lacking of resources and especially in terms of analytics or data science uh, people on our side. And they were providing us with those kind of profiles that were able to analyze the data or look at the data a way that marketers sometimes can do. It's a win-win uh, uh, relationship. When you arrive to that point, uh, I think it's a, clearly a win-win relationship. Well, yeah, and incrementality provides you guys with more alignment with your vendors, right? I think that's one of the main goals of incrementality. Because like you said before, agencies, their goal is to get top-line revenue up, for example, right? Or at least some agencies, right? Their ultimate goal with their clients is to get their revenue as high as possible and make some sort of a margin or cut of that. And in your case, that didn't necessarily align what was actually adding value for Uber, right? It wasn't actually driving more rides for you. But by introducing incrementality and by getting other partners on board with incrementality, you were able to align more on all right, this is what we all need to focus on as a way to actually drive growth and efficient marketing campaigns for Uber. Is that more or less accurate? No, no, definitely. That's really accurate. Like when you shift your goals and uh, you make it clear to the partners, like, yeah, like you can go directly to them. And uh, that's also what happened, like uh, not only with Facebook, Google, like talking to their product managers, but also like a lot of different partners. We were able to talk to their product team to try to change their vision or change at least a little bit like what they were focusing their priority on their roadmap, especially around incrementation. That's awesome. I think as you alluded at the beginning of the conversation, right? Incrementality is, and we're talking about, you guys started this process, it sounds like two or three years ago, right? Today, incrementality is like one of the biggest topics in our entire industry. Part of that is because retargeting has grown so significantly and retargeting lends itself very beautifully for incrementality measurement. But in general, you guys were somewhat ahead of the curve, would you say? Yeah, I think so. We tried uh, as much as possible to... I think we the situation that we were coming from <laughs> was coming from like, well, 
made us like work on incrementality uh, really, really tough. But I think, yeah, like definitely retargeting because you were also, I think in 2016 already, 2015, you were already talking about incrementality for retargeting specifically from companies, you know, like Criteo or those type of companies that came up and incrementality was, uh, measurement was everything for them because for retargeting specifically, this is like something you have to do. Otherwise, it's uh, really tough to tell to a partner that you they provided like uh, more businesses. But I think like the first thing we did at Uber, we were the, the first to do it, was to look at incrementality for acquisition specifically. Yeah, users that we universal, and that's where it's really difficult because how can you look at a, a control treatment method when you don't know the users? It sounds like a lot of it hinged on a deep analysis of organic trends, organic behavior, organic user profiles, and maybe comparing those to changes you saw as you added vendors. Is that at all part of what you guys did? It is. You can look at the trends like uh, the first, but then you also had to talk to the partners. And on the partner sides, like normally, like the partners, before they can bid on someone for every platform, they have access to identifiers. So on their side, they also have the access, the opportunity to have the technology in place to withhold a bid at the last minute for a specific user if this user is decided to be part of the control group. Mm. I don't know, any device that is starting or finishing with two will be part of the control for an experiment that we want to run on acquisition. Yeah, And basically, they can withhold the bid on that specific user and say, okay, we won't bid on this one because it's part of the control, but we'll bid on all the others because they are part of the treatment. And then you can measure the difference between the two groups. Exactly. And I think that's the beauty of technologies that built this type of products. And I think with predictive modeling and marketing science now becoming like more and more, I don't know, like strong, being stronger and stronger like uh, every year. I think that's something we will arrive at some point like to be even predictive on the incrementality of a specific user at the time of the impression. I think that's something. uh, Just so I'm clear of what you had said before, because it sounds like a really good idea, right? In terms of measuring incrementality within a UA program. And that's basically all IDFAs end in a number, what, zero through nine, and then letters A through H or something. I think there's 16 possible numbers or letters an IDFA can end in, right? So what you're arguing is in a UA program, you could say every time an IDFA comes in, number two is at the end of its string, hold it out, don't serve any ads to it. And then let's observe the behavior of IDFAs ending in two versus everything else. Exactly, yeah. That totally makes sense. That's a really smart idea. Cool, man. I mean, kind of your story of how you guys arrived at measuring incrementality, the amount of importance you placed on it at Uber, your ability to apply it to acquisition campaigns is truly fascinating, really, really cool. And again, it's been interesting to watch the entire industry start to arrive at that point slowly but surely. As I understand, you are not working at Uber anymore and you just moved back to Paris, like you said, two weeks ago. Tell us what you're doing today. I'm now back in Paris to start my own business. So I'm the co-founder of uh, Rave and this is a platform which will help uh, charities in France at first uh, raise more money. So we want to create experiences with influencers and different kind of profiles with a voice in France to help charities raise more money. So I will continue to use the marketing, the knowledge that I built at Uber and before that at the agency for that specific purpose. What inspired you to start your own business and specifically to start a business with really a pretty honorable direction like you guys have? What you can lose when you are in a, a big machine like Uber, when you do marketing, 
at some point I wanted to have like a measurable impact. Like when you're part of a big machine like Uber, it's really hard like to measure and understand what's exactly your part or what you're bringing, you know, your impact. And that's why like the old charities uh, re- like uh, work uh, is something I had in mind like for a long time. And I just had the opportunity with my co-founder to start it now. So I said, uh, all right, let's go. Well, that's amazing. If any of our listeners want to learn more about Rave, where can they find new business and follow it? They can find it now on the LinkedIn page I just created, but also on Instagram and Facebook. So rave.fr. It's only in French for the content. We will focus in, in, in France for, the, for now. That's great. But if anyone on this podcast is living in France or speaks France, check out the website rave.fr, check out their Instagram, check out their LinkedIn. In general, though, Antoine, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Really, really awesome insights. I'm really excited to see how Rave grows over the next few years. And I hope we have a, a chance to check in with you and see how things are going over there. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. Again, to our listeners, today's guest is Antoine Lamy, who is the co-founder at Rave. Antoine has a long experience as a marketer working at agencies like Addict Mobile, big transportation and consumer giants like Uber, and again today working as a co-founder of his new business, Rave. Thanks, Antoine. Thank you. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.